2: Hello and welcome to New Books in History. I am your host Rob Denning. Today I am speaking with Dr. Tom Rust about his new book, "Watching Over Yellowstone: The U.S. Army's Experience in America's First National Park, 1886 to 1918," which was just published today on June fifth, twenty twenty, by the University Press of Kansas. Professor Rust, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. And uh, just a quick correction: uh, "Watching Over Wonderland" was the intended title, but. Uh, the editors thought nobody knows what Wonderland was anymore because that was an old-fashioned term for Yellowstone. So now it's officially called Watching Over Yellowstone. Watching Over Yellowstone. Okay.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, Watching Over Yellowstone, the U.S. Army's Experience in Yellowstone National Park,
1: 1886-1918. Great. Well, before we get into the book and talk more about that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, you bet. Uh, I'm a native Montana, and I grew up in uh, Bozeman, Montana, which is only about 90 miles north of Yellowstone Park. So, that probably explains some of my uh, love for Yellowstone. And we used to go there all the time as a kid, and uh, you know, just even for a for a, you know Sunday afternoon drive, we we'd go into the park and see the wildlife and uh, go to Yel- see Old Faithful. I've seen Old Faithful every single year of my life, so. Uh, I I take that with pride because I have an ongoing love affair with Yellowstone. So um, I uh, uh, graduated uh, from the University of Minnesota in 1992, uh, interestingly enough, with a degree in classical history uh, and a minor in in classical studies. Um, But then I uh, uh, after that, when I went for my master's degree, I got my master's degree, uh, mostly in American history. I had a minor field in early modern Europe uh, and. I ended up uh then also getting a uh second masters degree in education because I decided I wanted to um, be a high school teacher. Go back to my original intent when I went to college, which was I was going to be a, a football coach and a, and a history teacher. Kind of my worst stereotypes now, but <laughs> um, but I was getting so that I, after I got my master's, degree, but I pretty much priced myself out of the market with two master's degrees by that point. So, uh, but I fell into a job at uh, Montana State University Billings at that point, um, and decided that I loved teaching college. College was great and um, ended up uh, getting my PhD from the University of Leicester in England, and uh, which uh, was a phenomenal experience. And uh, I've been uh, teaching at uh, Montana State now for 21 years. I've uh, done a number of different jobs there in addition to teaching, including running the honors program and um, I was uh, the state coordinator for Montana National History Day for a while. Uh, I was a service learning coordinator. Uh, now I'm currently also the faculty athletic representative on campus too. So uh, I've I've worn many hats and, and a long long period of time uh, uh, teaching at, at uh, Montana State Building. So, but I was lucky enough to teach in Montana, which is where I want to be. So.
2: And so it sounds like you've had a long history with the area and with and a long interest in Yellowstone but can you talk about the specific origins of this book where did it come from did it, did it did it develop out of a out of a research project in grad school or how did this come about
1: uh actually no uh this was one of those things that eventually i kind of always had in the back of my mind since the early 90s before uh i even completed my my master's degree Uh, I worked in Yellowstone Park in the concessionaires. I was the controller at Bridge Bay Marina. I was a cashier and then an assistant controller at Lake Lodge and then the controller at Bridge Bay Marina, which is kind of funny. A historian with math anxiety being an accountant is like living a Woody Allen movie. But um, living in Yellowstone – uh you have to realize especially back in the 90s first of all there's no television in the park at all used to drive visitors nuts and they were amazed to go to these beautiful hotels and there's no television uh there was also back then no internet access and so you know what do you do well you hang out with your friends and you talk with people and you hike and camp but you also read and you read a lot and so as i was there and we were reading i was reading um one of the books uh, uh at the time well there were two books at the time that were that were uh that I was reading. One's called The Yellowstone Story by Aubrey Haynes, who used to be the, the Park historian, and then the other one was Death in Yellowstone by Lee Whittlesey, which is uh, uh came, just came out um in one of the years I was teaching there and both of them touched on uh the military era in Yellowstone and I was like, Oh, this is great. Uh I need to know more about this. You know, I'm a I'm a yeah, I was in the middle of grad school, it was during the summer of just before I defended my master's thesis, which was on the military in in Montana at a place called Fort uh, Ellis. And so I was like, Oh man, this is great. So, you know, you know, you know, as historians do we read books all the time and we need to know. And, you know, once you get that interest, you start trying to find out, well I found out there wasn't much written other than um, one other book by a professor at the university of Montana um, that had talked about the military era. And most of the time it's, it's kind of tangential, to the development of the National Park Service um, and how the military came in and provided the operational structure for the Park Service um, Ranger program, and it's almost always very positive. And uh, but I did notice, of course, you know, being highly fluent in in those kinds of issues regarding social history, being in grad school and being you know you know immersed in that in those kinds of discussions that almost all the works focused largely on the administrative aspects, the superintendents, the decisions they made, um, and how that built into, uh, or or kind of faded into the, uh, the national park service. And so as a social historian, uh, my first um you know and primary love is social history. I was like, what about the soldiers? Well, there was always occasional little anecdotes and some of those other ones about it, but I always wanted to explore what was it like to be a soldier in in Yellowstone. You know these guys coming from you know New York City and they come to Yellowstone and you know what's 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 it like? First of all, they're soldiers they didn't necessarily sign up for that, and then they end up going to Yellowstone. I and mean, that's a whole different world than New York City to be sure. And uh, I was probably particularly attuned to that because uh, as a manager in the park, I um, uh, had employees from all around the country, and some of them, the idea of Yellowstone was a little bit more than what the reality of Yellowstone was like for them. And some, you know, particularly from urban environments, man, they were just kind of freaked out by by the wilderness and how much wilderness and how isolating Yellowstone could be. And so, you know, being aware of, of different people's reactions to Yellowstone um, kind of made me a little bit attuned to that because my reaction, I haven't grown up here and, you know, had spent every, you know, every moment that you know, my family could in the, in the park, you know, it was, it was, it was very interesting. And so that idea just kind of germinated, but, you know, I'd had that. Um, I'd, I'd already had my my master's thesis going, and so I finished that up. And then, you know, my doctoral dissertation you know, it was a little bit different. It actually is in uh, comparative frontier studies with uh, ancient Rome and the American West, and uh, with a lot of archaeology. So I, you know, had these things and new thing. I was always back there, and the new projects pop up every once in a while, and and um, that I hadn't anticipated. So got there, but then you know, once I got, um, you know, I'm fully promoted. You know, I got tenure got fully promoted it was like okay what do you want to do now well you know what i want to do this i've been having sitting on this idea for 20 years it was time to do it and so i was lucky enough to get a sabbatical and you know the minimal funding that i needed to go do some archival work and and was able to to do this so it was really more of a labor of love than anything
2: yeah and that really comes through in the book itself it's it's as we were saying before we went out before we started recording here i think the it's a it's a fun book because it talks about the daily lives of the the soldiers. And as you mentioned earlier, all of the, or a lot of the books that have been written before that had focused on the officer class. And so your desire to focus on the soldiers themselves, how do you find the stories of the soldiers? What was your source base? How did you, you know, how did you build this reconstruction of the soldiers' lives?
1: Well, fortunately um, I'd kind of done a little bit of that in, in some of my previous works. Uh, my uh master's thesis, which I turned into a book on Fort Ellis in montana uh I found um that a number of different sources were, were very useful one newspapers um would relate it occasionally there's Diaries but not as many as obviously you would like uh but one of the richest sources that I found were uh were the um uh court martial records, the general court martial Now there's two types of court martial records. There's kind of the what are called the garrison court martial, which are kind of the minor offenses, if you will, and you know, there's not a lot of testimony that's recorded, but the general court martial records turned out to be a very, very rich um uh, source of material for the common soldiers. So much so that, you know, you that you have testimony and dialogue in some cases, uh, particularly in, in one very, very long court martial uh about a murder um where uh in in in, in the winter time where there's these these isolated posts throughout the park where they would patrol for poachers and they would basically put five guys uh in the middle of nowhere. I mean quite literally nowhere uh and then it snows you know it snows 120 to 180 inches in various parts of the park and so these guys are cut off from everybody and uh it relatively unpleasant episode happened where there was some tension these guys didn't like each other really to begin with and they they were there for a year and so over the summer they, they they already didn't like each other and then it turns into a turns into a murder uh where um kind of a mutiny and the sergeant involved with, the, uh, or in charge of the station ends up killing one of his, uh, subordinates, a private and shooting another one. Um, and, uh, and, and the testimony was over 120 pages of, of testimony and And So, I mean, you can really get a feel for, uh, in my opinion, I thought a real feel for, you know, how, you know, the soldiers were interacting with one another, how they were interacting with tourists, what it was like to be locked up. I mean, I always kind of thought over the recent COVID uh, isolation. Well, at least at least it's not as bad as what, what those guys had to go through for sure, because I could still have Zoom meetings and, you know, if I needed to go to the grocery store and stuff. But, oh man, those guys were, they were locked in there. And so the court-martial records really were a very, very, very rich source of material.
2: Yeah, and I think that provides us a good kind of segue into the content of the book, because much of the book is talking about this, tension that soldiers that were stationed at Yellowstone had because as you mentioned a few of them were ready for it few of them wanted to be there <laughs> and it turned yeah. and, and so they they turned into all kinds of shenanigans so let, let's let's turn to the book and so what from your sense and from your reconstruction of of the uh, sources what was life like for these soldiers at Yellowstone well first off let's talk about why they were there in the first place
1: sure Yellowstone um, was in many ways kind of ahead of its time. And we, we take for granted what the idea of a national park is and should be. But you have to realize Yellowstone is the first national park really is, you know, they're, I mean, they're writing the book, they're writing the playbook on this. And um, there was no blueprint. There was no idea. And it's kind of funny. You watch the Ken Burns documentary on the national parks and you know it's this oh it's America's best idea it's very you know kind of you know um praiseworthy oh it's great and all that and it's the element of democracy it's the best thing you know it's truly democratic well that's true but democracy is a messy thing and I think especially right now we're we're seeing that play out quite literally in the streets and the um the idea of the national park was pushed largely by the railroads and the idea that, you know, we have this wilderness and, you know, uh, and it's tied in with the greater culture idea of what is wilderness and, and what is the frontier and the frontier is starting to disappear. And this, this area had very little economic value other than its natural splendor. Uh, You weren't going to be able to, you know, farm it for sure because it's, you know, it's at 8,000 feet and, and the soil's, you know, kind of rocky and it's mountainous and, um, so they, they create this national park, but they really didn't know what that meant. You know, it's for the enjoyment of the people and all of that. And that sounds great um, and, and all that. And, and the railroads want to exploit it. They want to bring tourists in because the railroad comes through um, and they they, they already – you know, are thinking about how can we get people to ride across the, you know, this, the Northern Pacific Railroad and starting to think about how to get people out here onto trains. And so they are one of the major players in trying to put that, but they're envisioning this idea of these resorts, if you will, like you see back east, you know, these rich person resorts where these little, uh, you know, people come, the playground of the wealthy, if you will and so uh you have that element that's going on but on the other hand you also have a local populace that has been using the parks for a different idea i mean sure they you know even in the early 1870s you know a few people are kind of coming through and there's not a thriving industry but they're slowly growing you know these local people are putting up little shanty hotels and whatnot but there's also local people that are going in and they're hunting the game there um which is, which is very abundant even then. And they're hunting the game to the point of just slaughtering it. And they're, you know, they're doing things like hunting elk just for the eye teeth, not even for the meat. Um, they'll hunt it for the eye teeth. They'll hunt it for the antlers. They'll uh, hunt bison for the heads alone, not any of the meat as well. And some of them are are hunting for subsistence. Some of them are hunting for trophies. Some of them are, you know, they're they're using the park in a very different way and then you start adding into the political element of it too about you know because nobody knows again what a national park should be and and who is it really for and funding for the park is always problematic even today funding for for national parks is you know i mean it's somewhat controversial especially different projects of the park and and so there there becomes this whole debate about you know how do what should we be doing with the park how should we patrol it uh should we lease it out to people and let you know kind of sublease and let business take care of, of policing it do we hire people and they hire people to try to do it and, and it changes with the political administration whatever administration is in the white house it changes with however congress is composed at any given time and ultimately it gets to be such a mess that um i mean really there was a movement to get rid of it to get rid of the national park to open it up to private development just get rid of the park altogether and let uh probably the railroads or or you know some other business take over the park and let them have it as as kind of a private thing to do with it what they will and at that point Phil Sheridan who was a, a loved the park he'd gone several tours there he was absolutely dismayed by what he had seen uh as far as the poaching and and just wanton destruction of wildlife in the park that he came up with this idea hey we need to we need to do something and i'll bring the army he's the general of the army at that point he says i'll bring the army i'll bring soldiers in and we'll police this which is very interesting um, given the fact that he, that, you know, he had some experience with reconstruction in the army performing police type duties. At the same time, that was very uncomfortable for the army. I mean, the reconstruction element, um, you know, was, was very fresh. You know, you have to realize it's, it's 1877 is when reconstruction ends. And here we are, you know, 1880s and we're seeing, you know, that's still a fairly fresh memory. And the idea of performing those types of law enforcement duties was not comfortable either for military uh, uh, people uh, the The upper echelons of of an officer corps of the army were very uncomfortable with those duties, as were the increasing number of of uh, senators and congressmen who had experienced the use of the army. In terms of uh, you know these types of duties, both in the south, but then also in the labor unrest in the north, you know things like the railway strike and stuff like that, where you know the army had come in on the side and performed these law enforcement duties, and so there was a real tension there with that. But but Sheridan loved the park so much that he said, "I'll bring in troops." Well, it ends up being kind of a big political problem that um, some people who had first had supported the park eventually decided they kind of want to do away with it. And they had, um, they basically withdrew funding to support any type of law enforcement activity in the park by the federal government. And therefore um, there had been a writer um, several years before in like 1882 uh, that said, well, if there's, if called upon by the secretary of the interior, the U S army will bring troops into the park. And so, um, in order to save the park, basically the secretary of the Interior asked Sheridan to send troops into the park because his funding was cut, basically eliminated, uh, that would provide any kind of law enforcement. So Sheridan sent troops into the park in 1886, nobody knew how long they were going to be there. Um, and it was not a nice clean cut, um, uh, job description either because, you know, who do they report to? Well, partially they report to the Secretary of the Interior, partially to the War Department. The soldiers who um, are there, this isn't necessarily what they signed up for. This wasn't the job they wanted. Um, they expected when they signed up. I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons why people joined to be soldiers. Not all of them wanted to necessarily be soldiers, but they knew what they were getting themselves into as being soldiers and going in and being uh, policemen of the park and, and rain, what we would call, you know, rangers, if you will, uh, that wasn't necessarily what they had signed up for. And especially the unique um, social situation in the park where most of the tourists that came through uh, were wealthy people who could afford to take a week off, ride the uh, train across the country, go to Yellowstone and have, you know, this five-day tour, grand tour um, that was paid for or that you paid for that uh, took you to all the different places and all these lavish hotels and stuff. Um, You know, they were very wealthy, whereas the the soldiers, the common soldiers at least, were, you know, uh, a little bit uh, uh, excluded from that. And, you know, as much as America likes to envision ourselves as a, classless society particularly in the you know mid to late 19th century you know, there was definitely some class distinctions that led to some of the tension that was going on oh
2: yeah i mean this is the this is the gilded age and with and you know our conception of the gilded age was this rising inequality different class structures and all of that and so it makes it makes sense that there would be kind of this class conflict maybe it may be too far to put it but at least some sort of class tension happening out here where you've got lower class folks who are generally the people in the army first and then you've got all these wealthy tourists and there's are, is an interesting passage in the book about um the soldiers kind of taking a little bit of glee maybe or <laughs> interest in rigorously enforcing the rules of the park against the wealthier folks and just Basically, to to watch the wealthy folks squirm a bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I like how the the wealthy tourists kind of push back on that. They do not like, under any circumstances, these these people who they perceive as their social inferiors as having that legal authority over them. And uh, you know, they'll write the commanding officer. My favorite, one of my favorite uh, elements of that was. Um, uh, at this, these, they used to do what were called bear shows. The hotels would take their garbage, and they basically take it out to a field, and then bears would come every night. and Tourists would go, and they'd watch it. and Soldiers were there to make sure that you know nobody got hurt and that tourists keep themselves away. Well, there was one. Uh, episode where you know the soldier just basically you know kind of berated some of the tourists for getting too close and they didn't like that and they wrote the commanding officer about oh how insolent this guy was and how how terrible he was and and, yeah i mean it was and they just weren't used to being talked that way and he ruined their whole experience of watching these bears feast on garbage because he was you know trying to enforce the rules and he did it probably probably might have done it a little aggressively but you know there's there was some tensions there because they weren't allowed to go into the hotels. I mean, they were, you know, in some cases just a couple of hundred yards away, you know, Fort Yellowstone in Mammoth is, you know, only 200 yards from this big lavish hotel and they could see these rich people come and they could see the lifestyle. They had these dances and whatnot, but soldiers weren't allowed to, to partake in it and they could see this stuff, um, this class structure that, you know, excluded them explicitly. And, and so, uh, you know, some tensions might've built up there and, um I tried to bring in archaeology. I'm also an archaeologist, so I have my feet in both worlds of archaeology and history and um I, I was fortunate enough to be able to be granted access to some of the archaeology reports and uh you know people weren't allowed to bring guns into the park or if they did they were they were kind of bound up and checked periodically to make sure that you know people weren't hunting with their with their uh weapons but at one of the soldier stations. Man, they sat there, they sat on the deck, as and we could tell this because there were so many, uh, you know, cartridge casings uh, laying around. They they sat there on their front deck and just just shot a crazy number of bullets. So they're just sitting there, you know, shooting stuff away. Interestingly enough, alcohol was not supposed to be served in the park as well. And, you know, soldiers would, would enforce that periodically as well. But at the same time, they would also, uh, we found... Uh, numerous, archaeologists found numerous uh, alcohol and beer bottles around. And so, you know, I just have this vision of these guys, you know, they're so pissed off at the tourists who are just sitting there drinking beer and shooting guns on the front porch of their soldier station when the tourists aren't around.
0: So,
2: Yeah, Yeah, that that does present a really uh, interesting image
0: there. Um. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So uh, let's talk a little bit about the soldiers themselves. One of the running themes of the book really seems to be that soldiers who are trained to fight wars were instead called upon to do very different things when they were stationed at Yellowstone. So what were some of the duties of these soldiers at at Yellowstone and why did that seem to clash so much with the military culture or the military training?
1: Well, they, um I mean, it's interesting because they still had to perform military duties. Let's, let's be clear that this was a, this was a pretty major fort. Uh You know, it had a couple hundred soldiers there Uh, at any given time and and the numbers vary over the years and they still had to do rifle training so there was a there's a rifle range just just inside the park actually from Gardner Um, there was uh, you know they had to march and drill Uh, there was a machine gun platoon there which I always thought was kind of funny because having worked in the park there might have been times where you would be tempted to use that on tourists. But uh you know, why why would soldiers have a machine gun platoon in Yellowstone? They drew up plans for a mock attack. What would happen if if Fort Yellowstone was attacked? And I'm like, well, who's going to attack it? I mean a bunch of renegade tourists or you know, I don't I don't see that happening. But nonetheless, they had to continue to perform those duties. But on top, which they would perform at any given post. Um, you know, around. I mean, you you would perform these issues. You'd learn to march and drill. You would do, and the inspection records, which I thought were another great source, um, very rich source they you know, talk about how you know these soldiers. There are some things they need to really work on because they are distracted uh, from their military duties. And this is that messiness I was talking about. You know, what job are they doing? Are they are they doing the job that the War Department wanted them to do, or are they doing what the Interior Department? Did? And trying to serve both masters was hard because you know the on the annual inspections, man, they weren't always doing what they needed to be doing they didn't march well they didn't always have the best horsemanship skills and and things like that so they have to do all that but then on top of that the unique duties of the park um they had to check tourists in they had to make sure tourists came in they registered them just like you know when you go into to national parks day. there's a little check post there they check them in they they would uh inform them of the rules. They would if they had guns, they had to bind them up so that they would do that, uh, so that they couldn't use them and hunt game in the park. They had to patrol the park for uh poachers, which is you know it's a policing type duty where they would go and they would kind of um and, and here maybe there's a little overlap with their duties, but maybe not as much as you might think, because you know, the cavalry of the time is is set up to, to, you know, be in open field and do maneuvers as units, you know, you know, whether it be, you know, from platoons to, to battalions, whatever, you know, and here you've got, you know, just a couple guys going through the park at a time trying to hunt down uh, poachers and people that are doing other illegal activity in the park. And, uh, the soldiers were so ill prepared for that because they're not used to, you know, marching in small groups, hunting, uh, poachers. They don't, many of them, um, have never been in the mountains before. Uh, they don't understand and units rotated through so often that by the time they figured out the park, they were usually out. Um, so they don't, they're not familiar with the terrain. They don't understand the wildlife. So they had to hire scouts which again, is a military tradition of in the West of you know hiring people because the u s cavalry didn 't understand um, Native Americans and, and the, the tactics that would be used uh, uh, in in field maneuvers against them, um, so they would hire people that understood it to, to be the scouts oftentimes native other Native Americans other tribes and so this was kind of a tradition, but you here they would hire locals that understood the park, use them as scouts to try and hunt them, and so the soldiers become you know kind of kind of you know the the muscle if you will um and they just kind of follow the the scouts around um so anyway they're hunting the poachers which actually could be a fairly dangerous deal cuz poachers uh, there was kind of an organized poaching ring in in Island Park Idaho just outside the park to the west that would come in and and hunt and uh, game and then ship it off take the meat and ship it off to the uh mining fields in in western Montana for food um, and they were a particularly ruthless bunch, almost kind of, kind of mafia esque, if you will. And you know they uh, they intimidated the local populace, and so the you know, soldiers would have to have to deal with them. Um they would uh, have to patrol the park uh for tourists uh any transgressions along the main road. So you know hunting poachers was kind of backcountry stuff. Whereas tourists, you know, they, they would follow um the the main routes and uh the the majority of tourists that are coming in are going in on these kind of organized uh, trains of of, of stagecoaches but there are some tourists that come in and just kind of camp along the sides of the roads well they would they would leave fires burning and and things like that and so well that was another job of of the of the soldiers was to patrol and make sure the fires are out making sure they're not getting too close to the geysers or getting you know getting themselves in a position of danger with bears or things like that so they would have to go around and and you know basically. Talk with people and tell them stop doing this and you're not supposed to do that or, you know, put your campfire out, things like that. Uh, and that's where I think some of the social tensions for sure uh, come into play um, when, you know, you, you have to tell civilians, hey, knock it off. You're not supposed to be doing that. But at the same time um that's not what soldiers are trained for you know soldiers are trained for you know fighting especially in the late 19th century when you know we're trying to emulate the great prussian cavalry and you know big charges and uh you know maneuvers on the battlefield you know going off and you know telling tourists to put their fires out or whatever that's not exactly what they're supposed what they're trained to do then at the thermal features because yellowstone's a very dangerous place Um, All those thermal features and all that boiling water, man—you can get yourself get yourself in a world of hurt pretty fast. Well, they're there to uh, the soldiers were there to tell tourists to knock it off, as well as to not vandalize it. One of the things tourists would do is they would carve their names on the thermal features. And soldiers you know would have to tell them to not do it well, here, especially when you've got the wealthy people who like to go and put their names on it, you have this this soldier who is a you know you know coming from at least a working class environment um telling these these rich posh people to knock it off and if you don't, I'm going to arrest you i mean it can create some tension there, and you know people would try to bribe their way out of it, and um you know soldiers wouldn't would have none of it at least. In some cases, in some cases they might have, but um, we don't have the sources for that, unfortunately. But they, um, you know, they they would see them do these kinds of things. And so this policing element kind of creates what I call a social legal paradox, whereas socially the people enforcing the laws are of a lower social class, but they have greater legal power over over their social superiors. And um, that created some tension, which is why I think, you know. Um, you know, and I, I delve into some some of the psychological theories about this this kind of tension that you know why they you know are you know maybe wantonly drinking and shooting their guns on the decks of their of their their soldier stations as a way to release that tension that they're feeling because they're not always treated well by the people below them. And, um, when Rudyard Kipling came into the park, he talked about how the soldiers who who would um, you know. Provide these types of uh, these types of uh, duties, they would um, you know be abused or not. You know the, the tourists Turks would want nothing to do with them, and uh, even Rudyard Kipling, who himself is you know slightly snobbish, uh, he felt he felt so bad for these soldiers that he you know he he would sit there and talk with what would sit there and talk with them. Although he did kind of look down and he said, well, the British cavalry is clearly superior to these guys, but but he does give a very interesting view of, of, you know, of the, the tourists and, the, and their interactions, and particularly in terms of policing with, with the soldiers. And so um, those would be some of the things, but probably the hardest job they had to do is fighting forest fires. The uh, you know, fires would break out in the park and, and the soldiers would, at that time, the idea was is natural fires, unnatural fires, you wanna preserve the park no matter what. So they would go out and they would fight the fires and it was hard backbreaking you know backbreaking work with soldiers who um weren't trained necessarily to fight forest fires particularly in the wilderness and they didn't even have the equipment to do it and so um you know they're they're out there just kind of making it up as they go and even even the post commanders are very frustrated um with this effort and it's uh some here's some of the newspaper accounts and and uh some of the the superintendent reports are very colorful in their descriptions of what a rough duty that was. I and mean, it was hard. It was brutal. And the soldiers aren't trained for it. Now, the advantage of the military here is that they were organized. And so, um, you know, you could, with unit organization, you might be able to, to uh, kind of be able to fight fires fairly effectively. But, man, they it wasn't what, what those soldiers signed up for. And, it, and they certainly didn't have the equipment to do it uh, for a long time. And and getting that equipment from the Department of the Interior uh, was was oftentimes very, very um Contentious between the the the, the superintendent the military superintendents and and the secretary and then also Congress.
2: Yeah, and so these soldiers are doing things that they're not they're not trained to do, and so you talk a bit in the book about kind of the soldiers' response, and so we we've talked about that a little bit. Can you just talk about a little bit more about the sense of just isolation that these people are feeling because there's so few of them patrolling a very large area. Um, Actually, yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more about the isolation and kind of the the way that they were dispersed? You, you you talk a bit about I think it's chapter three where you talk about the various areas of the park and how they're kind of distributed and and so um, which I think kind of would help to illuminate, illuminate kind of the sense of isolation that a lot of these soldiers might feel.
1: Sure. The main fort is a place called Fort Yellowstone, and it was the it's the headquarters of the park, and it's at Mammoth Hot Springs, which is um, just inside, it's about three miles inside the northern border of the park. It's still the park headquarters today. And traditionally, that was the jumping off point for what was called the Grand Tour. The roads in Yellowstone um, are basically a figure eight, and they follow the the original stagecoach um, from the 1800s stagecoach route fairly well today. So if you, if you ever see a, a picture of Yellowstone, there's like this figure eight of roads, and that's basically the same as it was back then. And at the top of that figure eight is Fort Yellowstone. That's the, the headquarters. And that was where most of the soldiers were stationed. However, Yellowstone is huge and it's, uh, you know, it's an 8,000 feet, it's 2,000 or so square miles. Um, and it, you know, they, there's a lot of wilderness there and there's a lot off of those roads, a lot of places off those roads. And, The two things that they needed to do, like I mentioned, was they had to patrol for poachers, which is in the backcountry off those roads. Then they also had to patrol the more traditional tourists on the roads. And to do that effectively is very difficult. And so um, they had soldier, what are called soldier stations, little outposts around the park. And one of the inspectors who came through in uh, 1902 said, you know, this is a throwback to the frontier, you know, which at this point, um, you know, in military terms, I mean, the frontier officially closes according to the U.S. census in 1890. But um, really in in the Northern Plains, you know, it's, you know, 20 20 years since there's been, you know, the railroads have come through and and really any kind of frontier contention has been stop um but he said you know this is a throwback to the days you know 30 years ago when you know you would have a post in the american west and you'd have little outposts out around and he said that's what that's what's going on here and so these outposts are around and they vary over time because they build new ones and take some down and um these outposts are basically cabins uh usually two or three room cabins and uh you would put a, a basically Anywhere between three and six people in these. You'd have a non-commissioned officer that would be in charge of them, and then um, you know several privates. And it would be their responsibility to patrol backcountry, to patrol the the woods uh, or the roads, and um, as well as protect the thermal features. And so, at, at where there's thermal features, there tends to be soldier stations. Uh, if you go into Yellowstone today at a place called Norris um, Norris Kaiser basin. Uh, they have one, they have uh, one of these soldier stations still, um, still up. And it's the, uh, it's now a museum for the national park ranger. And it's, it's a great place to be It's a very picturesque setting. i highly recommend going there if you ever get the chance. And, but these would be in the literally out there and, and you have to realize that in the winter time when the tourist season ends, all right, the poaching continues. And so these soldiers would be out there and they would be, they could be, you know, 15, 20 miles from the next soldier station. And it snows, you know, it snows to be 150, 180 inches, 120 to 180 inches, depending on where you are in the park. Um, and so these guys can be very, very isolated. Now they did have, um, and even in the summertime, it's very isolating, even in Back then as well, they did have they eventually ran telephone lines um, around these soldier stations, although in the wintertime, sometimes avalanches would cut the lines, um, particularly in, in the mountains but they would often cuz and I know this from the records the 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 orders would say hey you can't gossip on these lines you know, you got to knock off the gossip so only for official business well what that's telling me is is that these guys are so lonely and they you know they're stuck with these five people and yeah there's some tourists that come through but they don't have a huge amount at least positive interaction with that they're getting on the phone and they're just chit-chatting you know i mean they they're are they're, they're trying to you know keep in social contact with other people and so much so that you know the, the commanders are getting a little upset and telling them to get off the line, you know, stay off the phone. Part of that, you have to realize that the old party line idea is that everybody on the phone could probably hear what was going on in the other ones as well. But, um, but they're trying, they're really feeling that sense of isolation, even in the summertime. And um, at a place called Sylvan Pass, um, where I went through really in depth in one of the court martial records, you also get that feeling of, you know, you got to go someplace if you get to have these social interactions. The uh, The nearest uh, hotel in that particular case, because it's right on the east entrance of the park, was uh, about three miles away just outside the park at a place called Pahaska Teepee, which was a hotel built by Buffalo Bill. And they would go there and they would talk with the 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 proprietor of the hotel and the people who ran it um, with the maids there. Because, man, you know, there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of uh, women around, except for especially women that they could uh, socialize with um, other than, you know, the working class maids at these hotels. And so they would go there and that sometimes led to, you you know, when you've got. A military base, you've got a disproportionate amount of men to women usually. Now, uh, in this case, you've got more maids here that's, thats you know, uh, at the, working at the hotels. It's great. But, you know, there's a certain level of competition, too. And uh, the sergeant at Sylvan Pass, he would uh, uh, time his patrols every Saturday because they had to patrol to Lake Hotel, which is quite a ways away. Um, he would he would go from Sylvan Pass on the east entrance to Lake Hotel, which is almost in the center of the park, and that was part of the regular patrol route. And everybody had to take their turn, but he always made sure that he could time his uh, patrols for Saturday because there was always a dance Saturday night at the hotel at Lake, where there was more, uh, where there were uh, more maids. And so he would always time it and, and do that. And, and but I mean that's the efforts that you know they're they're riding hours and hours on horseback just to to you know. So socialize with in this case people with the opposite sex but just other people as well and so you know i mean they're really isolated and when you get into the winter time man you got to imagine how tough that is you could go you know you you're, you're stuck with five guys you know five six guys in a little three-room cabin and you can't even really get out a whole lot yeah you're supposed to go patrol uh, out in the winter and so you get some skiing and, and all of that but you come back I mean, this is like being in an Antarctic um, research station, you know, and and actually I pull in some in the murder of uh, uh, Private Cunningham where at Sylvan Pass, I I kind of bring in some of the the medical theory about that, which I thought was very interesting about, you know, what does isolation, this deep, heavy isolation do to you? And, um, you know, I mean, you're there, you don't have a lot, there's no way to get really get reading material. Um, and so, you know, one, one person who is in charge of a different station, one by uh old faithful said, so, you know, the cards get worn out. You're playing cards. All you can do is play cards anyway, and they get worn out. Uh, the reading material, you've read all the reading material. And so, man, you're done with that. You can, you can talk with your, the people, but I mean, you know, after, after six months of talking with the same six people, what, what all do you have left to say? And so, you know, it can create some, some real interesting social, uh social situations which you know led into that murder at at the sylvan pass and and um, you know, there, there's biological elements to it, too, because they didn't have, you know, I mean, they're even more isolated because, you know, they don't have uh, always phone access if the phone lines are cut in the wintertime. And you, know, you can lose uh, uh, or have your uh, a particular hormone called T3 that reduces, which can make you more irritable. It can, um, you know, and any any parent who's been living through the COVID isolation will tell you, you can become more irritable with your own kids. I'll guarantee it, and um, you get more irritable. You get short-tempered, and and um, in some cases, in that particular case, it turned very deadly. So, and so you talk a little bit about. Uh,
2: I mean, there's always the the very kind of dramatic choice that a soldier can make, which of course is desertion. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how that played out?
1: Well, yeah, Fort Yellowstone actually had one of the highest desertion rates. In uh, a, a military post west of the Mississippi. Uh, so much so that they had to have their own um, investigation, which is, which I found was very interesting. I was at the National Archives and I was going through the military records and um, came across this one that they actually were, the US Army was so concerned about the desertion at Fort Yeltsin that they um, did a special inspection just to uh, try to figure out why soldiers were leaving. Now, this is what I think is, is interesting because we have a tendency to assume, well, of course this has got to be easy duty. And when you read like Aubrey Haynes' Yellowstone story and stuff, they really talk about, oh yeah, oh, you know, some soldiers may not have liked it, but this was easy duty for them. You know, they're in a beautiful place. And we would assume because it's a today, very popular tourist destination, 4 million people go there a year. We would assume that, oh, this would be a this would be a, a cherry of an assignment right you would love it the soldiers didn't like it and um the report goes through and it lists several reasons why there was so much desertion there and um and it it there's a number of factors i thought were very interesting one of which was tied to you know just things that are typical at any military unit, which is, you know, you got uh, officers or uh, non-commissioned officers who are, you know, unpleasant, not very good at their job, uh, treat their soldiers poorly. There certainly was some of that. Um, The commanding officer for Yellowstone had said, oh, it's because the recruits that are coming in are just really bad recruits. They're they're really poor recruits. And it's it's because of them that we have this desertion. Well, the inspectors found out, "Mm, yeah, there's occasionally some, but that's not really the main cause of this problem. Um and uh they said, well, there are some things that are unique about the park. Uh this 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 posting in the park. One was it was so isolated, so very isolated. The only town was this place called Gardner which wasn't very big, and, um, you know, you know, a couple dozen buildings, you know, shanty buildings, and for the most part, you know, it could be bustling during the summertime, but in the wintertime, there wasn't much left in Gardner other than the prostitutes, which the soldiers would go to frequently and the bar keeps. But nonetheless, they – um they that was the only place of entertainment uh, unless you really wanted to take a big, long trip to a place called Bozeman or Livingston. Um, but that was that's a ways away, uh, certainly by those standards and, the, um, and regular rail service, you know, especially when the tourist season ends, you know, trains only go a couple of times a week. So, you know, Gardner was it. And other than that, they were on their own to entertain themselves. And so the isolation of the park, much less being in the isolated on the interior of the park. Um, That was that was tough. One of the ones that really stuck out to me, too, was the what um, the uh, multiple soldiers apparently referred to as the disrespect to the uniform. And that was, uh, as I pull in all the other sources, I think what we've been already talking about, uh, these these people looking down on soldiers as their social inferiors and clearly showing disrespect uh, to them, particularly in their legal you know enforcement duties. You know they saw themselves, even though they had to redefine kind of their idea of of being a soldier, to including also being somewhat of a police officer, if you will. You know the fact that these these people were disrespecting them. I mean, when a policeman tells you to do something, you're supposed to do it. In their mind, right? Well, you know, the, the, they're being shown the disrespect by some of the the episodes where where um, you know the tourists are, are you know not doing that. And so, you know, that, that led to, to part of it as well. Um, and, you know, so there was a, there was a whole myriad of reasons. It was what they, uh, what the inspector called an undesirable posting, which is very interesting, especially because most of the historical literature on this, which again, is fairly scant, tends to assume that this was good posting and people liked it. And even some of the signage around um, for Yellowstone itself now, because there's a, kind of a walking tour in Yellowstone of the old fort um talk about that though this was a good duty and they liked their duty here well that might be true for some soldiers but not for all of them and at certain times particularly around 1908 when they had that in um that special investigation it was very clear that the park itself was was undesirable that being stationed there was was definitely undesirable. I mean, it was harsh duty. You're asked to do not only regular soldier duties, but also additional, uh, you know, duties that you may not have ever really wanted to do. Um, the abuse from from tourists. Yeah, you know, it was it was not always not always a, a pleasant place to be.
2: Yeah, it definitely seems like it's one of those places that's really nice to visit. But living there, especially back in those days with few utilities, the isolation, it just must have been a much different, obviously, it's a much different experience than today. I mean, even living there today would be somewhat isolating, even if you've got internet and TV and all of that stuff, but there's still the sparseness of people. But back then, without having any of those amenities, yeah, I can see that. (laughs) So well, I, don't do- know.
1: I mean, I loved, I loved living there. Uh, it was great. I had a time of my life, but you know, it wasn't for everybody. So, and it still isn't. But you know, it is. You know, visiting and living. You're right; are absolutely different things.
2: Yeah, especially for people that didn't grow up in that area. I'm sure it's mm-hmm. uh, probably different if you're used to it. But yeah, somebody coming from, I don't know, the urban West Coast or the East Coast, <laughs> that would be quite a traumatic, uh, and dramatic, uh, dramatic change.
1: So this but is that, the but interesting part about that, I think, though, is that it also showed the interior, the Department of Interior, that soldiers weren't really um, suited for this. I mean, eventually, I mean, they were there for thirty years; they were there for a generation for crying out loud. But eventually, they start figuring out that soldiers aren't what is needed, and and that they need to have someone who can be in the mountains and stuff like that. So really, the the soldiers, even though the administrative, and this is where all the the historical literature is that the administrative element, you know, helps create the national park service, but the the soldiers, and more importantly, what the, the soldiers were not um, actually leads into, you know, well, what is it we need? That begs the question, what is it that we should have if we're going to not have soldiers, who should be more effective patrolling the park? And so it kind of leads into that um, thing. And, but it, you know, it took, that was a decade long discussion they had. That's a third of the history of the military and, in Yellowstone was that discussion uh, about, you know, well, soldiers aren't it, but what should it be? But what they weren't was as much as, as what they were that helped create the national park service.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about the end of the the military era there. So obviously we've got a lot of, they, they've built up a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge about how this is affecting soldiers but also learning what soldiers do well there, what soldiers don't do well there. And so what were the lessons that people learned from this military occupation? And then how did that influence the transition to civilian rule once the military left?
1: Well, the, you know, what they I think what they found first and foremost was I mean, the social tension was actually fairly significant because it's real interesting that the soldiers were not allowed to go into the hotels unless they were specifically invited and then they had to be in their dress uniform and things like that but they were not allowed to go into the hotels to enforce the park laws now this is really interesting because it's like this designated sphere of of influence where you know the these rich hotel tourists are like hey We don't, you know, we need to have our break from from these, you know, social inferiors who have a power we're not comfortable with over us. And so, you know, they end at the door and then everything is correct and right inside kind of a domestic space, if you will, of the hotel where they had their social apparatus. Which is interesting because, you know, okay, alcohol is not supposed to be sold in the park. But guess what? Every park hotel had a a bar and the soldiers couldn't go in and enforce it. Um, and so you know they could do whatever they want. Well, you can't have that. I mean, and and part of this is you know after you get into the to the early 20th century, you know, and the Progressive Era, and there's kind of this democratization, if you will, going on that's that's at least trying to chip away at some of these you know class distinctions. Um, you know, the the, the recognition the recognition that if you're going to enforce the rules, you have to have people that are talented, which the soldiers. Um, oftentimes we're not. I mean, like I said, they, they didn't have the skills. They weren't trained in it. They learned it. By the time they learned it, they were usually shipped off to somewhere else. Um, so you got to have someone that has the skills. You have to have someone who um, has the motivation, which many soldiers did not. And that was very clear um, because uh, – and I think you have multiple streams of evidence on this, not the least of which is you have written sources saying that, oh, yeah, there's no hunting in the park, but guess what? Soldiers are hunting. Uh, there's, and and they're not even really hiding it that much. Um, one, uh, sergeant is going through the park and he's actually writing his brother in kind of a diary format. And he he talks about, oh man, they're going to be, they're going to eat well this winter. Man, there, there, there's lots of, we had some venison for dinner tonight and they're in the middle of the park, right? They had something, well, the only way they're getting that is by, you know, hunting the game in the park, which they're they're telling tourists not to do, but they themselves are doing. So they're not very motivated. Some places there were reports that the soldiers were actually working in cahoots with some of the poachers. Oh yeah, there's a big herd of elk over there. So go ahead and help them. Um, and so they weren't clearly motivated. They probably were not real motivated to engage in uh, the policing of tourists because that, uh, at least from what what I saw in the records was not a pleasant interaction. Usually, interacting with tourists and and trying to enforce laws. So you, you know that wasn't. They probably weren't motivated for that. It's probably not why they joined up. In fact, there were some cases where uh, tourists um, who kind of wrote these travel diaries talked to them. Well, you know the soldiers say this isn't. You know they they expected to go to the Philippines because there was kind of a, a insurrection or a war, really, uh, real nasty one. Actually. Uh, going on in the Philippines, that's where they thought they were going to go, but they ended up going into the park and having to do this duty, which wasn't what they signed up for, and so they weren't motivated, so they don't have skills they're not necessarily motivated and they're also not acceptable legal enforcement to the people with whom they were you know in charge of 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 policing and uh, so much so that again they're excluded from the hotel so when they put together you know when they start having this very long discussion um about know what it is that that they should be you know if they're if they're not going to be soldiers eventually it's like well you got to have people that are trained that know what they're doing kind of like the scouts that they had hired um so you need to have them you need to have someone who's socially acceptable um and you have to have someone who's motivated well um they eventually are able to do that and they are you know, whereas there's, you know, a couple hundred soldiers during uh, patrolling the park, which, and they always wanted more soldiers. is it It's very interesting, almost over the parks, like, it's so big, we need more soldiers. But when they create the National Park Service, they do it with a couple dozen and they do it more effectively. Now, part of the reason for that is, is that they pay the rangers better. Um, and so they, according to, um, according to, uh, at least some of the, the superintendents, you know, they can attract a, a better class of, of, of people to be Rangers, but they also know it, they're motivated. They understand the region, they understand the job. And because of that, then they're uh, probably also a little bit more socially acceptable enough to be able to go into and enforce the rules within the hotels, as well. Now, part of that too is that the you know the strict class lines, you know of, of say the 1890s are are really weakening significantly by 1918, 1920. But nonetheless, um, you know I think part of that is, is playing out as well. And so you know what the soldiers were not is, is pointing them in the direction of what they needed. For the Rangers as well. Now, interestingly enough, you look at Ranger, you know, even today, modern park ranger uniforms, they look an awful lot like World War One era military uniforms, and that's not by mistake because the Army did bring a lot, um, a lot of, of, of its traditions in there. But you know, you go from a couple hundred soldiers to a couple dozen Rangers patrolling the park more effectively than than ever before. Yeah, part of that is is that they were able to get People that were more talented to that had talent and motivation to be able to do the job that a couple hundred men had done before yeah, and this is a
2: like I said before this is a it's a really fun book, and um, I encourage everybody to check it out but uh, before we go, can you tell us what's next for you? Do you have any new projects on the horizon?
1: Well, there's a chapter actually that from this book that didn't make its way in into the book um it's kind of a fun book. I mean, as you know, historians don't usually think about market potential. I just wanted to write this book because I thought, you know, I'm interested in social class. I'm interested in Yellowstone. I thought it would be a great book, great story to tell. And um, I didn't write it as particularly one that would have market potential. But when I submitted it, um, the editors thought that, oh, yeah, this does And some of the, 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 in the peer review process. The peer reviewer said, oh, this is great except for chapter six and chapter six, which didn't make it into the book, dealt with another court-martial case. Um, again, extraordinarily rich detail about a soldier who was court-martialed, um, for performing immoral moral acts on other soldiers. And, um, and yeah, and this, this was consensual. So don't get me wrong. It was very interesting, very, very fascinating chapter. Um, But because it dealt with sexual content in the National Park Service doesn't um, allow books with sexual content to be sold in the park. I think they're thinking more of the historical fiction oftentimes sold in in, uh, the bookstores. there was a little bit of give and take about whether that chapter, and I really wanted that chapter because I thought it it really showed a lot of what soldiers' lives were like, uh, um, sexuality being a part of that, but also you know the the social interactions that were going on. It was it was a very fascinating uh, chapter, and. Um, and I kind of stuck to my guns, which actually probably delayed the release of the book here. And I talked with people on, you know, some of my colleagues about this on campus. I delivered a paper uh, last summer uh, at historicizing masculinities at the university of Newcastle in England and talked with people there about it. And they're like, well, you know, you know, I admire you. And they were a sympathetic audience. They loved it and they thought it was great, but they also said, you know, here's the deal. Even though university presses are in theory, not, you know, always interested in making a profit. Those books that do sell allow other books by scholars, which are very important books, to be sold. And so it turned out not to be as black and white as I initially was making it. And I relented and let let it go. But um so now I'm kind of shaped I've shaped it up into an article. Although it's long enough I could maybe make a like a little micro history out of it. There's a book that I use in in my class on on the Renaissance uh called A Modest Axe, The Life of a Lesbian Nun and Renaissance Italy by Judith Brown that um, takes one particular kind of court case of a nun or investigation of a nun and and her sexuality and it's very very light this was called micro history um, I could probably make it into a small book like that if I if I really wanted to so I've toyed around with that idea uh, but that's the immediate one on the long term uh, my uh, my goal is to um, uh, continue, looking at um looking at the court martial records because I think those are uh, greatly underutilized. And I'm a big proponent. I mean, again, my one of my minor fields is my master's degree was uh early modern Europe. And microhistory was is a big thing there. And, you know, that's a whole nother debate, you know, about the benefits and Um, limitations of microhistory, but um, microhistories oftentimes give this glimpse into the world of people who don't normally leave written, otherwise written records. And I think that if using these uh, court martial records, you can start to get a, a little bit better view of life in the military um, out in the West particularly. Um, but I, I think you could expand it um, you know, for, for soldiers in the 19th century. Uh, and I'm gonna look at the West probably and look at some of these court martial records um and what they can tell us about life, uh, even though they're exceptional cases because obviously they get court martialed or whatever, but um, you know, they can give you a real interesting glimpse into the world of the common soldier where their voice actually Comes out in ways that we don't traditionally see, and um, so I'm, I'm going to start collecting. I've already started collecting a few of those, uh, and so I'm going to. I think that's where I'm going to go go with that is, is how these court martial records can really um, enlighten us to to otherwise silent groups in history.
2: Well, those both sound like fascinating projects, and I uh, look forward to seeing what comes out of those. No, yeah, me too. <laughs> so uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to
1: me today, Doctor Rust. You bet.